You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, Episode 92, State Constitutions, Part 2. Last week, we looked at the first five colonies to produce state constitutions. Today, we're going to continue with the remaining colonies, beginning with Pennsylvania and continuing on in the order in which the states adopted their first constitution. So far, the colonies we reviewed followed a similar pattern. A royal governor refused to let the legislature meet to discuss issues, typically the flashpoint being appointment of delegates to the First Continental Congress in 1774. The local patriots would get at a snit about this and form their own quasi-legislature to get the work done. Over the next two years or so, the royal government would become increasingly irrelevant as the provincial government slowly took over and finally formed a new constitution. And that pattern generally continues through each colony, though each has its own twists. Pennsylvania followed a similar path, but with a slightly different dynamic. As a proprietary colony, Pennsylvania did not have a royal governor. Way back in 1691, King Charles II had granted Pennsylvania to William Penn as his personal property. Penn ruled as governor until his death in 1718, at which time he willed Pennsylvania to his three sons. By 1775, Pennsylvania had passed to William's grandson, John Penn, along with his cousin, also named John Penn, who owned a minority 25% stake in the colony. Because the proprietors were not royal appointees, they did not have to worry much about the king replacing them for their policies. Sure, the king could tear up the colonial charter if things got far too out of hand, but the Penns were not just political appointees. They literally owned the colony. At the same time, Governor Penn did not have to listen to the people or face re-election. He would remain governor until death, unless, of course, some sort of revolution that overthrew the entire political structure by force came along. Pennsylvania also had a state legislature dominated by Quakers and other pacifists. These groups opposed armed revolution on religious grounds. Even though Quakers had become a minority of the colonial population, They retained control of the legislature, mostly because the legislative districts had not been evenly divided based on population, and they greatly benefited the Quaker communities in and around Philadelphia. In 1774, it came time to pick delegates for the First Continental Congress. When Governor Penn dragged his feet on the issue, local patriot committees, known as Associators, voted to meet as a provincial committee in July 1774. They met for the purpose of choosing delegates to the Continental Congress, choosing a mix of conservative and radical delegates, reflecting the divisions within the colony. 
That fall, voters sent a more radical group of representatives to the Assembly, but the radical committee still operated separately from the Colonial Assembly. After Lexington and Concord, the Associators converted themselves into militias ready to go to war. The Assembly, still full of moderates, gave them quasi-legal status under a Committee of Safety, which helped finance and regulate the new radical militias. These moves made for incremental reform. Over 1775 and early 1776, the Quakers as a group began to remove themselves from politics. They did not want to be attacked for being Tories, but they also didn't want to support the war. Radicals took their places in government, shifting the colony radically to the left. In May of 1776, the Second Continental Congress encouraged all colonies who had not done so already to set up a provincial congress if the traditional legislatures were not meeting the needs of the public. And although the Congress directed this generally at all the colonies, they were looking very closely at Pennsylvania when they were saying it. The radicals in Pennsylvania took this opportunity to call for a provincial congress in June. Only people approved by associator committees could vote for the delegates to what would become a constitutional convention, and one of the conditions was that voters had to formally repudiate any allegiance to the king and accept whatever government the convention approved. Therefore, moderates and conservatives were pretty much left out. The Radical Committee of 100 pressured the Pennsylvania Assembly to withdraw its instructions to the Pennsylvania delegates in the Continental Congress to reject independence. The still relatively moderate Assembly found itself in a difficult situation. It was not quite ready for independence, but it really saw the writing on the wall with the voters and did not want to become irrelevant. It did withdraw its instructions not to vote for independence, but it did not issue new instructions telling them to vote for independence either. Essentially, the delegates were left up to do whatever they wanted. The internal fighting in the assembly became such a problem that they stopped meeting entirely by the end of the summer. The Radical Convention in July set about creating a new constitution for Pennsylvania, but also began to engage in a series of rather radical power grabs. They disarmed any Pennsylvanians who were not associators, they implemented price controls, created offenses against the state, compelled citizens to take loyalty oaths, and assumed control of the courts and elections. The new state constitution, which took effect in September 1776, was the first to be written after the Declaration of Independence and was by far the most radical of all the colonies. First of all, it granted the vote to all free men 21 or older. It eliminated any property requirements, thus allowing the rabble to have a voice in choosing legislators. It created a single-body legislature to make all laws. There was no second body that was more controlled by the elites to rein in the first one. There would be no upper house, though the people would elect an executive council that would run the government. The assembly and council would elect a president annually to serve as the head of the council. But the president had no independent authority outside of the council. There was no single chief executive. The Constitution also set term limits for legislators. They could serve no more than four out of every seven years. Legislatures also could not pass laws in a single session, except in emergencies. A legislature would have to publish a law 
then wait until the next annual election before they could enact it. It also required that all legislators take a religious oath, quote, I do believe in God, the creator and the governor of the universe, the rewarder of the good and the punisher of the wicked, and I do acknowledge the scriptures of the Old and New Testament to be given by divine inspiration, end quote. So this permitted the seating of members of just about any Christian sect, but not beyond that. There was also a Bill of Rights that guaranteed freedom of worship and protected the civil rights of all who acknowledged some belief in God. The new constitution also protected the rights of pacifists not to be forced to bear arms, though they might be required to pay the state some compensation if they did not heed a call to arms. It guaranteed basic due process, right to counsel, to confront witnesses, to have a speedy jury trial, and the right against self-incrimination. It also granted jury trials and civil suits. The Constitution also recognized a right against search and seizure without specific warrants, a right of a free speech, free press, and the right to bear arms, the right to assemble, to petition, or to instruct representatives in government. It also included a right to move between states and for people to form a new state in vacant countries or such countries as they can purchase. This new constitution would remain in place until 1790. Now, the Royal Colony of Maryland followed the most common pattern. The royal governor shut down the legislature in 1774. Patriots created their own quasi-legislature known as the Annapolis Convention to run the colony. The convention met nine times over the next two and a half years, selecting delegates to the Continental Congress, supporting trade restrictions in early sessions, after Lexington, the delegates voted to create their own army. They also began to call themselves the Association of Freemen. In July 1776, they agreed to create their own constitution, which they did at a convention that fall. They completed their work in November. Again, the constitution took effect without any ratification or public vote. The constitution itself was pretty traditional. It created a House and a Senate, as well as a governor elected by both houses. Voters elected their representatives directly each year, but voted for electors who would choose senators every five years. Property requirements limited voting, though free blacks who met those requirements could vote. Only Christians could hold office, though they could be from any sect. A Declaration of Rights included freedom of speech and press, freedom of worship, and the right to maintain a militia, and basic due process rights. The Maryland Constitution remained in place until 1851, though it saw numerous amendments. The Constitution allowed the legislature to pass amendments as long as they passed through two different sessions. One of the early amendments took away the right of free blacks to vote in 1809. North Carolina also followed the traditional colonial route to statehood, and created a pretty traditional constitution. The royal governor had refused to call the assembly into session in 1774 because he knew that they would cause trouble. Patriots then formed a provincial congress, which met in August to choose delegates to the First Continental Congress and to support colonial boycotts. The provincial congress met five times over the next two and a half years, each time getting more aggressive and eventually creating its own army. The Provincial Congress began work on a temporary constitution in April, but could never seem to pull the trigger on enacting it. 
it was not until October of 1776 that the people elected a more radical group of delegates who finally enacted the new constitution. The Congress declared the constitution in force as of December 1776, again without any sort of popular ratification process. Like most other colonies, North Carolina's constitution began with a declaration of rights guaranteeing the right of the people to create their government and elect representatives, separation of powers, due process, protection from warrantless searches, freedom of the press, right to bear arms, right of assembly, freedom of worship, and others. The Constitution divided the legislature into a House and Senate, both subject to annual elections. To vote or hold office, one had to be a freeman and owned a certain amount of land. Voters also had to be at least 21 years old. The legislature held the power to appoint judges and other court officers, as well as generals and field officers for the state's army and militia. The legislature also elected a governor for one-year terms and limited to serve no more than three out of six years. The legislature also elected a seven-person council of state to advise the governor. It banned clergymen from serving in the legislature or council of state. It also mandated that, quote, no person who shall deny the being of God or the truth of the Protestant religion or the divine authority of either the Old or New Testament or shall hold religious principles incompatible with the freedom and safety of the state shall be capable of holding any office or place of trust or profit in the civil department within this state, end quote. It also barred the establishment of any specific state church or denomination. It also banned debtors' prisons, established a public school system, allowed foreigners to become citizens after one year, and barred the private purchase of Indian lands. North Carolina's constitution remained in place until an 1835 constitutional convention made numerous amendments, including the direct election of the governor. Georgia was one of the last colonies to jump on the Patriot bandwagon. You may recall that they did not send delegates to the First Continental Congress in 1774. When a provincial congress met in January 1775 to decide whether to send a delegation to the Second Continental Congress, they could not agree to send a delegation at that time either. It wasn't until after Lexington that Georgia Patriots began organizing militarily and seized control of colonial gunpowder. A second provincial congress met in July 1775 when they finally approved a delegation to the Continental Congress and set up a Council of Safety to enforce colonial trade bans with Britain. By the end of 1775, the provincial congress had control of most of the colony, forcing the royal governor to flee in January 1776. By May 1776, the Congress drafted a rudimentary constitution simply called Rules and Regulations, which created a president and a council of safety selected by the unelected provincial Congress to run the colony. It also appointed a Supreme Court and gave the president authority to appoint lower magistrates. At the same time, the provincial Congress began work on a more permanent constitution, which it finally enacted in February 1777. The new constitution created a unicameral legislature, just one body, and the people elected legislators annually with the vote limited to free white males who owned property. The legislatures would select the governor and council from among its own members, 
and the governor could serve only a single one-year term out of every three years. The Georgia Constitution lasted for only 12 years until the state created a new one based more closely on the then newly adopted U.S. Constitution. Now, New York's Tory population contributed to the colony's very slow trajectory toward independence and statehood. The Royal Assembly had sent delegates to the First Continental Congress in 1774, thinking that that would be a way to slow down the radical calls for boycotts against Britain. When that strategy failed, the Assembly rejected Congress's recommendations and refused to send delegates to the Second Continental Congress in 1775. At that point, the New York Radicals held their own provincial convention in New York City and in April 1775 chose their own delegates to the Second Continental Congress. That convention lasted only three days, just long enough to select delegates. It did not make any attempt to govern the colony. The Radicals only created a provincial congress after Lexington when they met in May and began organizing militia and taking control of the colony's weaponry. Otherwise, though, the Congress was quite moderate. It instructed its delegates at the Continental Congress to seek an accommodation with Britain and oppose the Patriot invasion of Canada. A second Provincial Congress, which met from December 1775 till May 1776, spent most of its time fighting with General Lee, whom Washington had sent to organize New York for a possible invasion. A third Congress, which met in May and June of 1776, instructed its Continental Congress delegates to oppose independence. Finally, in July 1776, the Provincial Congress convened in White Plains to create a state constitution. It also allowed its delegates to support independence, but this was after all the other states had already done so and New York was the lone holdout. In August, the Congress tasked a committee to write a constitution. But after the British Army invaded New York, the task of drafting the Constitution got delayed. The finished draft did not arrive until March 12, 1777. The Provincial Congress approved the Constitution without a popular vote, and it went into effect in April. The New York Constitution differed from earlier state constitutions. It started off with its own Declaration of Independence, which quoted liberally from the Continental Congress's Declaration. It created a legislature divided into an assembly and a senate. The assembly served one-year terms, senators served four-year terms. It limited the right to vote to adult male property owners. Unlike most other constitutions, the New York one created a governor elected by the people rather than the legislature. And the governor would serve a three-year term and had the power to revise laws passed by the legislature and to end a legislative session. The governor also appointed judges and other government officials without even any approval from the legislature. In other words, New York would have a strong executive, which was not easily under legislative control. Now, we're getting towards the end of the list here, and we're finally reaching Massachusetts, who you would think would have been at front stage because of its early fighting and a leading proponent of independence that they would have created a constitution long before this time but it did not get around to creating one until 1780. Instead, the Provincial Congress ran Massachusetts for six years, from 1774 when Governor Gage shut down the Assembly until 1780 when it finally adopted the new Constitution. 
During that time, the Provincial Congress pretty much operated like the old Colonial Assembly, except it did not bother to seek the approval of the governor for anything. Now, the state did try to enact a constitution in 1778. It was the first state to submit its proposed constitution to the people, and the people rejected it. In 1779, it held another convention and once again submitted the new constitution to the people. This time, they approved it. So that constitution finally became effective in October 1780. Since it was so much later than the other colonies, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on its details now. But it is the only constitution to remain in effect to this day, never having been replaced. I have yet to mention Connecticut or Rhode Island's constitution. That's because they never created ones in this era. Connecticut did not write its constitution until 1818. Rhode Island waited until 1843. Not coincidentally, these were the only two colonies that had elected governors during the colonial era. As a result, these voters happily operated under their colonial charters even after they became independent states. They had no interference from Britain in the administration of their government. Okay, so that accounts for all 13 colonies. Now, I know going through each of these was a lengthy and sometimes repetitive process, but I think these first attempts at self government say a great deal about what the people, or at least what the patriot leaders in each state wanted. Most of the colonies kept government structures largely similar to what they had in the colonial era. The biggest change for most was giving more authority to the legislature and having a relatively weak chief executive who would be dependent on the legislature, not the other way around. Most made an effort to create a Bill of Rights in order to identify and protect the rights which had forced them to seek independence from Britain. These constitutions were not about making major social or economic changes or even massive political changes. They largely kept the existing systems intact other than removing the authority of the king over the government. They moved that sovereign authority to the people but did not give the people much direct control over the government. Few extended the right to vote beyond those who already had it under the colonial system, and those that did often took back those rights within a few years. None of the constitutions ended slavery. The Massachusetts Constitution did not explicitly ban slavery, although the state Supreme Court interpreted it to end slavery about three years after its enactment. Overall, the framers of these constitutions did not want to reinvent the system. They wanted to make sure the system under which they had thrived before the recent troubles remained largely the same. They did not want the king or parliament to start eroding the power they had enjoyed as neglected colonies. But neither did they largely want to share power with the poor or women or Native Americans or blacks. Even though these republican ideals on which the constitutions were based led to the intellectual conclusion that they should expand power to the whole people, it would take generations for the government structures to actually live up to that ideal. Next week, we return to New York, where General Washington has to deal not only with an impending invasion, but with Tory conspirators who are plotting his murder.
This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hi, welcome back to another American Revolution podcast book recommendation. This week, I'm excited to announce the podcast's first Robert Morris Circle supporter on Patreon, Mark Vanderberg. Mark runs a production company called The Colonial Theater on the Air. It produces audiobooks on a wide range of topics, comedy, science fiction, adventure. I was drawn to the historical fiction and enjoyed listening to a program called Ticonderoga. It's a wartime adventure set in the French and Indian War. Now, these works have professional voice actors, along with great music and sound effects. It reminds me of old-time radio serials from the 1930s, and I appreciated the attention to historical detail in the stories. These works used to be available on Sirius XM Radio. Today, they're available via iTunes downloads, through Audible, or on CD from Amazon. If you want to check out their collections, including some free trial downloads, go to colonialradio.com and give them a try. I will also put a link on the amrevpodcast.com website. I also wanted to mention my internet resource of the week. This week I wanted to mention Founders Online. This is a site run by the National Archives, which runs a fully searchable database of correspondence and other documents from George Washington, Benjamin Franklin, John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, Alexander Hamilton, and James Madison. So if you're ever looking for any original correspondence from these guys, this is a great place to start. It also includes some of their documents. I find it very useful. If you want to check it out, go to founders.archives.gov. So this week we finished up the state constitutions. The notion of drawing up an agreement from scratch to outline how government would work and what rights would be protected was a rather novel one for the time. I guess it flowed logically from their reliance on colonial charters, which had performed a similar function. But this was really the first attempt to apply social contract theory to the real world in such an impactful way. State leaders were doing this while pushing aside a royal government and also fighting a war to make sure all of this was not going to crumble into a failed rebellion. This week's book recommendation is Understanding State Constitutions by G. Allen Tarr. Like last week's recommendation, the book examines the creation of state constitutions. This one then shows how the constitutions evolved over time and how we should interpret them today. It's really more of a political science book than a history book. And I guess this makes sense since the author, Alan Tarr, is a political science professor at Rutgers University. Now, 
I'll admit that this book is a little dry and academic for the casual reader. However, it covers a great deal of important information that helps us to understand how constitutional law began in the United States and how it has evolved over time. The book was first published in 1998. It's fairly short, about 200 pages, not counting the extensive bibliography and the index. I found this book to be very interesting, but as my wife often reminds me, what I find interesting and what the rest of the world finds interesting are often miles apart. That said, if you are interested in the evolution of state constitutions over time, this is the book you want. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me next week for another American Revolution podcast. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics wherever you get podcasts.